If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. If you're not sure where Isaiah is, you can open up probably right in the middle of your Bible and you'll hit Psalms and then head to the right and you'll eventually find a big book, Isaiah, and look for Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to pick up where we left off uh, in verse 8, Isaiah 9, 8. And we will take that all the way through the end of chapter 10. So we'll cover a large portion of Isaiah uh, this afternoon, but hopefully we'll be able to see the connections. Uh, One of the convictions behind our practice of preaching and teaching through books of the Bible is the desire to hear God speak to us what he wants us to hear. Uh, Certainly this can happen through topical preaching. It can happen through sermons from different texts each week. Um, And from time to time, we do preach that way. But the steady diet of preaching at our church is to walk through books of the Bible. And one of the reasons for that is that by going through a book and and hearing that book's full message, we are trying to submit to the scriptures and allow God to speak his message to us rather than our own message. Uh, Preaching through books of the Bible helps you know that I'm not just telling you my own ideas or preaching my own agendas or picking and choosing the things that are convenient to talk about, but rather that we're allowing God's word to tell us what the truth that we need to hear is. Uh, One of the other unique things that happens when you preach through a, a book of the Bible is you have to hear that message as many times as God wants to say it. Uh, We saw this with the book of Acts, that there were different stories and different themes, but a lot of the message was the same. Uh, And we we had to hear the same message over and over again through different lenses. And it was good because repetition is the key to learning and repetition reinforces things. And as we've been going through the book of Isaiah, and as we will continue to go through Isaiah, we're going to continue to hear a similar message. And it's a call to trust the Lord. A call to faith in God and a call to reject all other refuges and all other sources of hope. Isaiah wants us to know that if we are not firm in faith, then we will not be firm at all. That all other foundations other than the Lord are going to crumble beneath us. And that, because this this message is, is so vital and because we are so slow to believe, Isaiah and and God through Isaiah is going to keep hammering this into our heads. And as someone who who struggles to walk by faith every day and who is tempted to trust in other things, I'm happy for consistent reminders. As the guy that's studying it every week and is reminded every week that I need to continue to trust the Lord, um, I hope that you feel that same need to hear this message over and over and over again. But there's different focuses, and in particular, our passage today is going to expose the futility of trusting ourselves, of of having faith in our own strength and our own ability and our own wisdom. It's ultimately about the folly of pride and arrogance. What better time of year to be reminded of our need to trust the Lord rather than ourselves than at the beginning of a new year? Because whether you're a person who makes New Year's resolutions or not, the, the wide open spaces on your 2020 calendar at least in some way awaken this desire in you to put the failures of the past behind you and to strive to do better in this new year, whatever better might be. And I would say go for it. I, I like New Year's resolutions. I like the new year. Uh, I think that resolve that it brings is a great thing. However, the resolve that it brings can also be a seedbed 
for pride. We can begin to think that all we need to do to change our lives is to try harder. Uh, That the hope for the broken places in our lives sort of lies dormant down within us. I would affirm the image of God in you and in me and the giftedness that we have all been been given as people created in, in his image. But Isaiah reminds us that the bedrock hope that we have is the Lord. It's not ourselves and not our abilities. Our abilities are gifts from him. Our minds and our hearts must constantly, therefore, be turning to trust in him, not in ourselves. And so Isaiah says this to us this afternoon. He says, Humbly lean on the Lord, knowing that the lofty will be brought low. Humbly lean on the Lord. If you just want to write that, that's probably sufficient, but I kind of like the last part too. Humbly lean on the Lord, knowing that the lofty will be brought low. With that in mind, I think I'd like to change the title that's printed in the bulletin. I want it to be something like Lean on the Lord. Or if you'd like a pop culture reference, lean on me might be good. Humbly lean on the Lord, knowing that the lofty will be brought low. Have you ever tried to lean on something that wasn't sturdy? Uh, Maybe you've put your hand on something and then it kind of falls underneath you. Or you've been trying to go up or down the stairs and the handrail is loose and you, you slip. Or maybe someone was steadying you as you walked and then they ended up falling and so you both ended up falling. Uh, We all know the consequences of leaning on something that is unsteady. And what's true of our balance is also true of our souls. We're reminded that unless we lean on the Lord, a similar thing is going to happen to our faith and it's going to happen to our lives. We'll find that all other securities buckle underneath us. And that's true of our own strength and our own wisdom as well. As Rich Mullins sings, we are not as strong as we think we are. So my hope today is that we would leave leaning on the Lord that we would see the disastrous end of human pride that this passage describes, and we would find ourselves resting our lives fully on God and on God alone, that we would find leaning on him to be a place of strength, a place from which we can know victory over sin and joy in life and, and peace with others and satisfaction with where the Lord is leading us, that we would humbly lean on the Lord, knowing that the lofty will be brought low. The call to lean on the Lord begins in a four stanza poem that goes from chapter 9, verse 8, through chapter 10, verse 4. It's easy to spot the four stanzas because they each end with this phrase, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out. Still, as I read it, you will see that very clearly. That That statement signals to us the soberness and the seriousness of this poem. And what is initially interesting is that this poem is directed to the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember that Isaiah is a prophet, but he's not a prophet to the northern kingdom. Who is he a prophet to? He's a prophet to the southern kingdom. He's a prophet to, to Judah. And recently he had been calling Ahaz, the king of Judah, to trust in the Lord, not to trust in that alliance between Israel and Syria that he was invited into, not to trust in Assyria who was coming to invade God's people, but rather to trust in the Lord. And here Isaiah encourages him, he speaks to, to, to Judah by using Israel as an example. He shows Judah the path that they're on because Israel is further down the road. We do this when we try to warn people against certain things that are going to harm them in the long run. So we might try to help someone see how their choices down the road 
are going to lead to, to disaster. And that, and in that means we try to keep them from going down that path. Israel was an example of what happens to God's people when they trust in something other than him. Israel's destruction comes 140 years before Judah. And so Isaiah speaking to Israel is warning Judah, hey, this is the path you're on and this is where it's going to lead. Don't go this direction. So let's hear the warning. I want to read beginning in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. This is what God's word says. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. But the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this... His anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Chapter 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their, of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make their fatherless, the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners, or fall among the slain. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. As we consider this call to humbly lean on the Lord, knowing that the lofty will be brought low, we see first in these verses the humiliation of prideful Israel. The humiliation of prideful Israel in chapter 9, verse 8 through 10, 4. Broadly speaking, if you look at this section, it's going to show that spiritual rebellion has much wider consequences. That the spiritual rebellion of Israel leads to national collapse and pain for the whole nation. Their private decisions of pride lead to destruction for everyone. And the consequences begin with arrogance in verses 8 through 12. You notice in verse 9 it says that they speak in pride and in arro with arrogant hearts. And verse 10 tells us what they say. It says that they look at all the destruction around them, the, the falling bricks and the trees, and they're not humbled. 
rather they they recognize their rather than recognize their weakness and their need of the Lord, they announce that they're simply going to replace the ruins around them with better versions. They're going to have dressed stones instead of clay bricks. They're going to have cedar trees instead of common sycamores. They cry out, we're equal to the task. We're going to build it back, bigger, more beautiful. There's part of our American spirit that kind of admires them, you know? Isn't that what we're supposed to do when things fall apart? We just double down and we try harder? We, we fight through adversity? We make lemonade out of lemons? There's not, not, nothing wrong with that, I don't think. There's nothing wrong with hard work and optimism. And yet, those kind of attitudes could blind us from the fact that God is humbling us. Pride can keep us from leaning on the Lord and it can cause us to lean on our own understanding. And when we do that, we're in trouble. If the ruins around us are the result of our own sin or failing to have faith in God, then all the positive thinking we can muster is really not going to help us in the end. In fact, it's going to lead to God's judgment on us. Verses 11 and 12 show that Israel was devoured by those whom they had aligned with and by the Babylonians, which God had orchestrated. There's a parallel to this chapter, to these verses in in chapter 5. And since we've already considered those things, I'm going to move a little bit quickly through this, this poem, but what we see is that from that arrogance, there's a progression, and it progresses in chapter in, in verses 13 through 17. Um, Israel's pride leads to corrupt leadership. So that's what Isaiah is talking about here. He's talking about how the leaders of Israel are corrupt. Because of their corruption, the, the Lord cuts them off. Leaders who had been leading the people astray are now cut off leaders who cared nothing for widows and orphans, leaders who had no compassion, God, God gets rid of them. It says there, he, he cut off Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. What are the head and the tail? The head is the elder, verse 15, and the honored man is the head. And, and verse 15, the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. He's getting rid of all the leadership in Israel because they're all corrupt because of the pride that they have. The, the dearth of leaders, the absence of leaders then leads to civil strife in verses 18 through 21. Civil strife. When evil is found at the top, who suffers? Everyone underneath. And it's the people who suffer. Wickedness that has been ignited by these sinful leaders, it, it grows and it, and it burns hotter and higher, hotter and the land is set on fire. And God's people, it says, become fuel for the blaze. The decisions of arrogant leaders harm others people below them. Verses 20 and 21 graphically communicate that people were so concerned with their own self-interest that they acted like cannibals. They sliced off the flesh of their neighbors to satisfy their own desires. That's what pride does. It thinks nothing of others. It leads to civil strife. And then the end of it all in chapter 10 verses 1 through 4 is oppression and destruction. So we go from arrogance and pride in the first part, the verses 13 and 17, 13 through 17, corrupt leadership. Verses 18 through 21, civil strife. And then finally, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, oppression and destruction. Injustice fills the land. The poor and the helpless are taken advantage of. And when the day of judgment comes, there's nowhere for anyone to hide. God was sending Assyria to punish the people, and there would be no place for Israel to hide when the punishment came. And what was the root of it all? 
arrogance and pride that refuse to trust the Lord. With a stubborn refusal to submit to God and a prideful trust in their own strength, that's where it was rooted. The path of pride and its resultant destruction are laid out for us here, and we have to learn from Israel's example, a negative example. We should learn that the, the, the pride that we have has great effects and destruction. We should see that this is the story of any government, of any nation whose hope is in themselves and not in the Lord. What's, it gonna, what's going to result? It will result in corrupt leaders. It will result in civil strife. It will result in social oppression. And it will result in eventual destruction. But not just governments. It's the end for God's people. This is Israel. It's the end for God's people if they turn from humble trust and choose to trust and their own strength. As a church, where is our hope? What are we trusting in as we seek to build the kingdom of God in this world? Are we trusting in gimmicks, in lively worship or edgy preaching? Are we trusting in a building? Are we trusting if we could find a place at the right spot in town that that's how we grow the kingdom? Are we trusting in money, in social prestige? Are we thinking that if we have influence with local governments or state governments or national governments, that that's where success is going to be found? If we're trusting in these things, you know what's going to happen? Our leadership will be corrupt. We will be driven by some version of success that is not the Lord's. If that's where our hope is, then the poor and the outcast, the widow and the orphan, the refugee and the homeless will be forgotten. We'll seek our own self-interest with no regard for who is devoured along the way and eventually will be consumed by God's wrath. We have to learn from the humiliation of prideful Israel. We have to ask, where is our trust? What are we hoping in? As individuals, we need to seek out and find the places where pride has seeped in. As I thought about that, the picture that came to my mind was just sort of writing over our lives that our only hope is in the Lord, just some sort of banner as it were that we would write over and say, my hope is my hope, my trust, my faith is in God alone. And then to think about the different areas where we need to write that over, that we would write over our bank accounts. I'm broke and penniless apart from God's grace. God is my provider. That we would write over our talents and abilities. Every breath that I have is given by the King. So too all of my gifts and my strengths. I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to trust myself that we would write over our sanctification, our desire for holiness. We would say, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to fight the good fight, but it's a fight of faith. And it's only trusting the Lord God of hosts that I will ever conquer sin. That you would write over your parenting and you would say, I cannot raise good kids on my own. Apart from God's grace, I can do nothing good for my children. That you would write over your schoolwork, young or old, you would say, if I'm smart, it's because God has blessed me. And if I can learn, it's because God has helped me. I'm going to work hard, but I'm going to trust God in the midst of my efforts. We have to remind ourselves constantly that God alone is our hope, not anything that's in us. And what will the result be? Not arrogance, but humility. A humility that leads to continual trust in the Lord. A humility that leads, in fact, to love. Think about all the oppression that resulted from the arrogance of Israel. A, a humble trust in the Lord is going to lead to the opposite. 
The pride of Israel caused them to neglect others, to devour one another for personal gain. But humble trust in the Lord bears the fruit of caring for other people. Knowing our need of the Lord results in us not using people for our own desires, but rather loving them and blessing them. If you want to be a person of compassion and grace, you know where it starts? It starts with rejecting pride and embracing weakness and trusting God alone. Because the fruit of seeing that our only hope is in God is that we're ready, we're even anxious to offer that same hope to anyone and to everyone. No exceptions, because we recognize that we are hopeless apart from God's grace. And everyone can have hope because of God's grace. Well, Israel doesn't turn. And God is going to judge their pride by means of the, the, the Assyrians. And when he's done using the Assyrians to judge his people, he's going to judge them as well. That's what we see next. So we saw the humiliation of, of prideful Israel. Next we see the humiliation of prideful Assyria. The humiliation of prideful Assyria. This is spelled out, if you look at the structure, it's spelled out in chapter 10, verse 5 through 19. And then it's picked up in chapter 10, verse 28, through the end, verse 34. And there's a a middle section there, uh, sort of the meat in this sandwich, which is about the faithful remnant. And we're going to come back to that. But let's think about the humiliation of prideful Assyria first. Look with me at at chapter 10, verses 5 through 11. Listen to God's word. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger... The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Verse 8, and he, this would be the king of Assyria, and he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols what I have done to Samaria and her images? Assyria is described as a rod as a staff in God's hand. Later on, he's described as an axe or a a saw. I brought a saw and I brought a hatchet with me. I I thought it would be a good illustration. And now that I think about holding up an axe in front of everyone, it feels a little weird. But here, so I won't do that. But here's here's the reality. Is they're sitting back there behind this drum set. Isn't that weird, right? Sometimes illustrations don't work out the way you expect them to. But here's, here's the point, is that there's a lot of potential for them to cause damage, right? But have they? No, they're just sitting behind this, this drum set doing nothing. Because the only way they're going to be, have any power is if they're connected to the strength of someone's arm to swing the axe or to pull the, the saw. This is what God is saying about Assyria. Assyria is a tool in God's hand, and they can't do anything apart from him determining to use them. That's not what they thought, though. Assyria, and especially their king, thought much more of themselves than that. In verses 8 through 11, the king of Assyria says his commanders are like kings. And he talks about how all the idols of the nations couldn't stand before him. 
And therefore his conclusion is, how in the world is Israel's God going to stand before me? Yahweh can't stop me. No other idol has ever stopped me. Listen to the further boasting of the king of Assyria in verses 13 and 14. For he says, you can hear his pride because he says, I and my a lot. Uh, For he says, verse 13, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of the peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. He thinks he's pretty hot stuff. What does God think about all of his talk? Verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, what's God's work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem? It's his judgment of his people, of which he's using Assyria to do it. When he's finished with that, it says, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look of his eyes. God is going to punish Israel for their pride. His hand is stretched out against them. His anger is still kindled. And Assyria is going to be the rod that he's going to use to punish them. But when he's done with Assyria, what's he going to do? He's going to punish them for their pride. This is what God says in verses 15 to 19. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? And if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Do you see the irony there? Can you imagine the ax saying, look how strong I am by myself? Verse 16, therefore the Lord of hosts will send a wasting sickness among his stout warriors and under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest, that is the forest of Assyria, and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. There'll be so few trees left that a child can count them. That forest imagery is picked up later on. Uh, Verses 28 through 32 talk about how intimidating Assyria would have been when they entered into Israel to to, to destroy it. But then God says in verses 33 and 34 to conclude this chapter, he says, it says, behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the boughs, that's the, the boughs of the tree, will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Do you see the irony? Assyria, the axe in God's hand is going to be cut down. This one who seemed to be so high is going to be humiliated. This one who was like the famed cedars of Lebanon is going to be chopped down to the ground. This man who thought he was so great is going to be felled in one swing of the majestic one's arm. The example of chapter 9, verses 8, verse 8 through 10, 4, is a warning of what's going to happen to those that are filled with arrogance instead of faith. But the example of Syria here in chapter 10 is to remind Judah and us that God is Lord over all the nations. 
It's a truth that's gonna be driven home in, in the next section of Isaiah, but we should note it here that, that all powers that rise up against God's people are eventually going to be cut down. The prideful and the exalted and the powerful in this age are going to be brought low. It's what Mary's saying in her Magnificat in Luke chapter one. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. There's a comfort that these words bring us, especially in the light of the power of the nations and the leaders that surround us. You know, as prideful as the king of Assyria was, history shows us that his high thoughts of himself were not unfounded. Assyria was amazingly strong. And they could pluck nations, as he says, like an egg from a nest. They were a fearful people. They were a frightening nation. And for us too, there are nations, there are forces against us that are fearful we would do well to remember our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who face persecution from nations, from terrorist cells, who, who know what it is to have church, their church raided, who know what it is to be threatened with imprisonment and death by the powers over them. Those forces can feel unstoppable. They can feel like they're just going to pluck you like, a, like an egg out of a nest. They feel like a fire that's gonna sweep through the land and consume them, like a flood that's just gonna rise and it's unstoppable. So Isaiah reminds the people of God in all generations that God is in control, that no matter how strong the nations or the forces against you appear, that God is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. Isaiah says it like this in chapter 40, behold the nations are like a drop from the bucket and they're accounted as dust on the scales. All this leads to the meat of the sandwich in verses 20 through 27 of chapter 10, where we see the humility of the remnant who trusted the Lord. So we see the humiliation of prideful Israel, the humiliation of, of prideful Assyria, but we see the humility of the remnant who trusted the Lord. I want you to hear Isaiah Chapter 10, verses 20 through 27. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Verse 24, therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield that against them as a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it up, lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. 
that last phrase, if you're not sure what it means, my Bible has a note that says the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. So I'm not even going to try to figure out what it means. Just FYI. <laughs> but what we see here is we see that we're introduced again to this, this theme of the righteous remnant. That, that for all the pride that filled God's people, there was still this group of people who trusted the Lord and who would need to stand firm in their faith no matter how badly things were crumbling around them. And it's this group that we're called to be a part of. Those that are trusting not in ourselves, but in God. And if we're going to remain faithful to the Lord, if we're going to keep trusting him and not ourselves, then the Lord says we need to do two things. The first is, don't fear the nations. Don't fear the nations. No matter how powerful they appear to be, we have to trust that they are ultimately going to be judged that God will bring deliverance like the deliverance that came when he delivered Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. In the face of impossible odds and daunting enemies, when all hope seemed lost, the Lord God showed that he was king over Egypt and he will do the same for all of our enemies. What a great hope that is. That one day all evil will be punished and justice and righteousness will fill the earth. So we don't need to fear any earthly power because God is ultimately going to bring them to justice. And we don't need to fear any earthly power because the worst thing that they can do is kill us. And if we're in Christ, we don't, we don't fear death. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, we sang, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, never, no, never forsake. There's no fear because we have done the second thing that these verses call us to do and that's lean on the Lord alone. Lean on the Lord alone. Our salvation is found when we admit our sin and our inability to save ourselves and we just lean on the Lord. We fall back into his arms. We're saved from God's wrath, from the judgment of our sin when we trust that Jesus lived a life of perfection and that he died to pay the price for our sins. And we lean on him in faith. And when we do that, we're saved and we're made children of God through trusting in Jesus. That's how we're saved. And it's also how we continue to live our lives as followers of Christ. We lean on the Lord alone. What does it look like to lean on the Lord? I think Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 helps us Familiar words, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's what Isaiah is telling us to do. Trust in the Lord with everything you have. And what? Lean not on your own understanding. Practical outworking of that. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. We must seek to constantly acknowledge God. That's how we trust him. That's how we lean on him. That's how we write faith over our lives, as we said earlier. So we have to form habits that express trust in him. Because the, the river of our lives flows towards self-sufficiency and pride. So we have to find a way to stem that river and to keep it flowing the other directions towards faith. And we do that through just simple habits. When I was in Haiti back in August, every car trip that we took began with prayer. Everyone. We were less than a half mile from the airstrip. 
And every time, when, when we left the airstrip to go back to the compound where we were at, when we went from the compound to the airstrip to go back, we prayed before we left. And on the longer trips as well, there was this consistent and constant acknowledgement that God is our help and our keeper. You might take up a similar habit, you know, that, that you could transform your driver's seat into a place of dependence on God, a place where you can humbly say, my hope is not in my driving abilities, however good or bad they are. <laughs> my hope is not in this car. My hope is in the Lord alone. A simple habit that just acknowledges that our trust is in God. It's the same as when we pray before a meal. We pray before a meal to simply say, God, I did not provide this food for myself. You provided it for me. You are my provider. In this book that we're hoping to discuss a couple Wednesdays from now, one of the daily habits that he advocates is kneeling prayer in the morning, midday, and evening. Uh, Just kneeling by your bedside in the morning and at night and at work, finding a moment, whether you can kneel or maybe just pray with uplifted hands to to pray to God and to recognize our our need of him. You may hear kneeling prayer and you think, oh, those are probably really long prayers. Uh, that's what I love about this. It's actually just a very simple prayers that, he's, that he lists here. Here's your morning prayer. Spirit, I was made for your presence. May this day be one I spend with you in all that I do. Amen. That frames your day to say, I'm dependent on the spirit. Midday, Jesus I was made to join your work in the world. Please order the rest of my day in love for the people you have given me to serve. Amen. And at bedtime, Father, I was made to rest in your love. May my body rest in sleep and may my mind rest in your love. Amen. How how might your day and your ability to trust and depend on the Lord change if when you woke up in the morning, when you went on your lunch break, And before you went to bed, you just took a moment to literally kneel in prayer. To let your body posture express your humility and your dependence on God. And then to speak that dependence out to him. Again, the the natural flow of the river of our lives is towards self-sufficiency and pride. And so we have to find ways to fight against it. And to fight for faith in God alone. Or we will flow down this path that leads to destruction. If we persist in pride, the anger of the Lord will be persistently against us and his hand will be continually stretched out, not for us, but against us. But if we humbly trust in him, then his hand of righteous anger is taken away. And it's taken away because he has poured out that wrath on his son. God sent Jesus who humbled himself and lived the life of complete trust in the father so that he could bear our sins so that god might stretch out his hand of so that god might stretch his hand of judgment out not against us but against jesus who bears our sins and pays the penalty for them through his death and because of that he can transform that refrain of the song and instead it says his anger has turned away his hand is stretched out in love At the foot of the cross, we have to shed all of our pride. We have to admit our sinfulness. We have to admit our inability to build up our lives more beautifully than before. We have to renounce our arrogance. We have to renounce any apparent righteousness that we have. And so on this first Sunday of the year, I want to invite you to humbly lean on the Lord, knowing that the lofty will be brought low, but also what? The humble 
will be exalted, will be lifted up. I want to invite you to participate in another habit. It's not kneeling prayer every day. It's not praying before you drive. It's the Lord's Supper. This is a habit that we have, that the church has been given by Jesus himself that causes us to renounce pride and to lean on the Lord alone. We take the bread and the cup, and when we take it, you know what we say to our souls? We say, Christ is my only hope. Jesus is my only strength. Jesus alone is my salvation. I have no hope apart from faith in him.